Well, good morning. It's a joy just to gather here today at Calvary Church. If you were like me, you walked outside your door today and you just breathed in the fresh air. Wasn't it just an incredible morning temperature-wise and just the sky was actually clear from Santa Ana, at least from my perspective. It was one of these days where I had this thought of like, hey, maybe we should just unbolt the chairs in here and we'll just go meet outside today. Do you, do you want to? Should we do it? And then, <laughs> then I thought, well, then after like five minutes, though, we'd be like, it's hot out here. We need to go back inside. But I hope that you get a chance at some point today to, to be outside and just to enjoy this great weekend. Full moon, last couple nights, it's just been great. God is good, and he even reveals his goodness through his creation, even in our suburban culture of Orange County, right? It's awesome. Hey, we're continuing our series through the book of Romans. We've been going Romans 12 through Romans 16 over the last six weeks or so. We're calling this part of Romans, Live Free. It's a response to the first 11 chapters of Romans, which talks about being set free. And so now, as it shifts from chapter 12 to 16, talking about relationships among Christians and and how we should live free, living out the gospel on a daily life. And so if you will, turn in your Bibles. If you don't have one, there's a Bible right in the seat rack in front of you. And turn to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14 as we continue our way through this great book. We'll begin in Romans 14 verse 1. And there's a sermon outlined in the little booklet bulletin that you received when you came in. And so feel free to pull that out if that would help you stay focused or or even learn as you go. And let's begin in Romans 14, verse 1. It says this. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord." Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. And so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so that's why we open this ancient text 
directed to the first century church in Rome, and we say, Lord, speak to us through your powerful spirit as this word endures for us here today. And as you think through, what, what is this talking about? What, this passage, not judge, don't show contempt, vegetables, meat. What exactly is Paul getting at as he speaks and writes to this church? Well, I believe that he's talking about living in this community of grace and actively pursuing that as the fellowship of believers of Jesus Christ. So it's important to kind of define a few terms on what I mean by community. By community, I'm talking about a group of believers, of Christians, of those who proclaim Jesus as Savior and leader and Lord and master of their lives. And so that could be as simple as the people in your house. That could be your life group. That could be guys that you get together with on a Friday morning. That could be definitely what we do here on a Sunday morning and beyond at Calvary Church. That's a community. And then we're talking about being a community of grace. And this word grace, many of you can define it, but just so we're all on the same page with what we're talking about here this morning. Defining grace is undeserved favor. Ushering, allowing, giving forgiveness and patience and love and kindness and acceptance to one another, particularly in the community of Christians, of believers. And so our call as Christians, according to Romans 14, is to be this community of grace, which sadly doesn't come automatically to us. There are many Christians who do not treat each other with grace. I mean, imagine, if you will, that you're sitting on an airplane and you hear two people sit in the seats in front of you. And they begin to have a conversation. And one person says, where are you from? The other person says, oh, I'm from Orange County. Oh, no way, I- I'm from Orange County too. That's, that's really cool. And the other person just kind of volunteers and goes, yeah, I- I'm a Christian. The next person goes, well, I- I'm a Christian too. And the next guy goes, well, well, actually, I feel called to work with the youth at my church, and so I'm working in our youth group. The guy's like, no way, I work with the youth group at my church too. Another guy, well, I'm going through the book of Romans right now with my students. No, I'm going through the book of Romans right now with my students. What's your favorite chapter? Chapter 8. My favorite chapter is chapter 8. Do you appreciate my acting here? Is this working for you? Okay. <laughs> Next question. Yeah, I just bought a, a brand new study Bible. What kind is it? NIV. Ah, oh, we could never be friends. I, I, I hate the NIV. The NIV is not a translation. It's nearly inspired translation from God, you know. And these two guys part. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? But it happens. It's the reality of our world as we pursue Jesus Christ and this kingdom of God that we do things like this to each other. We judge one another for the smallest and pettiest things. The theologian Steve Martin once said, (laughs) before you criticize a man, walk a mile in his shoes. That way, when you criticize him, you'll be a mile away and you'll have his shoes. (laughs) This is our world as we live for Jesus Christ. So we're called to live counterculturally, right? We're called to live in a way that doesn't just come natural to us, to live in our flesh. We're called to live supernatural, to live free. God says the best way to live in freedom is to walk in this community of grace towards one another. As you think through that, the stakes are high. 
Because if you even consider what Jesus says in, in John 17, when Jesus says, my prayer, and he's speaking to the Father, my prayer is that as you and I, Father, are one, that, Lord, you would make those that I send out one. And then in John 17, Jesus goes on to say, so that the world will know that, they are, that you sent me. In other words, our unity as Christians has a direct communication and reflection on the fact that Jesus was sent from the Father into our world. And so the stakes for this are high. It's huge. Because the world is watching us, and if we treat each other poorly and badly, if we judge each other for the smallest things, then the world has one more thing to put in their pocket to say, Jesus isn't for me. And so we must get this right, church, as we live here in our culture and our world at Calvary Church. And so you look here at verse 1. What does it take, what does it look like to be a community of grace? To be a community that accepts one another. Well, one, and you can see this in your notes, is that a community of grace accepts people that God says are acceptable. Verse 1 says that right off the bat. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith. The original language of this word accept, I love it. It means to embrace, to welcome, to hold tight to, to fasten with. And so when it says the word accept in 14.1, it's not saying, all right, endure someone, tolerate someone who has different opinions and styles than you. You know, just make sure you hold your mouth tight so you don't say anything poorly about a person who has a different way of worshiping than you. No, no, it's saying embrace them, welcome them. And that's what this word is indicating. And then it goes on to say, accept those who are what? Who are weak in their faith. And so what is this exactly saying, weak in your faith? Well, one thing I believe it's not saying is this. It's not saying that their saving faith, their faith in Jesus is weak. And the reason that I think that is because the object of our faith as a Christian is Jesus. And Jesus is not weak. And so this is not talking about the faith that someone places in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And that part's weak. I believe instead it's talking about the condition of their daily life as a Christian, their confidence to live free in Christ in their walk with God on a daily basis. Another evidence for that is in 14.1. It says, now accept the one who is weak in faith. And that word in faith is in the present tense. So it's not talking about salvation. It's talking about the daily life of a Christian. And evidently there's people that are weak in faith they're having a hard time living in freedom in Christ. And we know just from the culture here that their group, there was groups that were struggling in their freedom in Christ. You had Gentile Christians here in Rome, and you had Jewish believers. The Jewish believers had come out of Judaism, and they had come out of a culture, a religious system, that had said, we will tell you what to eat, we will tell you when to eat, we will tell you what festivals to celebrate, and we will tell you where to celebrate these festivals. And so they have been used to this structure and this, in a sense, rigidity of religiosity. So this is what they were saved from. The law no longer was for righteousness. 
The law was for Christian living, for growth. And they were having a hard time kind of adjusting to that, to living free in Christ. And there was others in this time, both Gentiles and Jews, who were struggling with the whole idea of eating meat. And the reason for that was because in Rome there was a lot of false worship. There was idol worship going on, and part of this idol worship, as we've read, is they would bring choice meats into these temples, and they would present this meat onto the altar of this false god. And the god, of course, is false. It's not real. It's dead. It's never been alive. And so the altar wouldn't consume the meat. And so what they would do is, after their ceremonies, they would take the meat, and they would bring it back out to the marketplace to resell and this is how the priests of these idol-worshipping places would even make money. And so these Christians, both Gentile and Jews, were struggling because they'd go in the marketplace and they had no idea to be able to discern exactly was this meat that was offered to an idol? Was this meat that was prepared kosher? In other words, was it prepared according to Old Testament law? So they had all these questions about that. And so what they decided to do was just become vegetarians. And so they said, we're not even going to deal with the question. We're not going to worry about it. We'll just eat vegetables. And so you had these people that would come together and they would only eat vegetables. And then you had another group of Christians here in Rome that all they would do was, or they were okay with, with eating meat. And you think, well, like, no big deal. Like, why can't they just, like, have separate churches, like the Church of Vegetarians and, like, the Church of Meat Eaters? And uh, let's, just, <laughs> let's just go that way. But again, this is not God's will. Jesus said in John 17, I pray that they'd be one, that they'd be unified together so that the world can see that I've been sent from the Father. And so God's heart here is for unity, to accept one another even in your differences of conviction. It goes on to say of this idea of opinion. It says, verse 1, Now they'll accept those that are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. This word opinions is the idea that these aren't the absolutes of the faith. This isn't essential to being a Christian, to walking with Jesus. These are what we'd call non-essentials, things that the Bible doesn't necessarily give us a command or clarity on. And so what are some of these non-essentials? Like even as we think through our day, what could be some of the non-essentials in our lives? Well, in our lives, it could be things like, what style of music is best for worship? Or what should a church look like aesthetically? Or what should people wear even when they come to church? Or should a Christian participate in dancing? Is it okay for a Christian to have money, to be wealthy? Should a Christian abstain from alcohol? Should a Christian get a tattoo? Should Christians serve in the military? Should Christians boycott businesses that promote a lifestyle contrary to what the Bible says? Okay, now I have some of your attention. Because these, these are like good questions, huh? I mean, these are questions that deserve robust discussion and thought from, from each of us. And so please don't hear when we talk about essentials and non-essentials that we as Christians should shut off our brains and, and just not even consider anything for the sake of unity. That's not true. But... What's important for us to understand is this, is that as you look at the non-essentials of the faith, these things that are, in a sense, not the primary thing, 
We are to be people. No matter what your answer is to some of these questions, we are to be people that walk together in a community of grace, that live together in unity amongst these type of things. Amen? Okay, I still have to convince you a little bit. <laughs> so here's the deal, you guys. We're an 83, 84-year-old church, right? And I know many in this room haven't been here that long. Maybe this is your first Sunday and we welcome you. But when you're 83 years old, you can tend to be more rigid than graceful. It's just, let's just state the fact. God has blessed us to be here in this community for so long. I'm so thankful for the generations that have come before us that have faithfully prayed and given and made Calvary Church what it is today. So please, this is no bashing on previous generations. But we as a church can tend to be ungraceful to one another if we're not careful. When we create policies, whether that's the leaders or that's just one another, whether it's sitting in the same seat every week and someone else sits in our seat and we're like, what are you doing? This is my seat. We gotta get this right. But luckily, we have a graceful God who gives us the power, the strength to live out what naturally doesn't come to us. And that's the encouragement we have is as we live for Jesus Christ and are powered and equipped by him. Great quote from a Reformed theologian is this. is in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and in all things charity. That's our call as we live out Romans 14. And so as we accept people with weaker faith, it says in verse 2, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Again, a non-essential. Verse 3, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt. And that word contempt is actually the word or it means to ignore. And I don't know if you've ever tried ignoring someone. If you're married, how well has that gone for you when you've tried to ignore your spouse when you're in a fight? If you've ever tried to ignore someone, it's a lot of work. It's exhausting to do that. But it's saying, don't do that. Don't ignore someone in these non-essentials. The one who does not eat and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. So the big question here is, if God's accepted a person, then who are we not to accept them? If God said, no, this, this is part of my family, this person belongs to me, then who are we to say, no, 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 we can't have fellowship or unity with them. Personal faith in Jesus as our master and our savior is what the Bible says the way that God accepts someone. You see, we are born in this world with a sin nature, and we not only have a sin nature, but we fall into sin, and so we sin, we break fellowship with God, we're separated from a holy God. The Bible says the way to be brought back into a relationship with God is to place your faith in Jesus, the leader, the savior of your life. And when you do that, you're accepted by God supernaturally in an amazing way. And therefore, if you're accepted by God because of that, then you should be accepted by other believers. And verse 4 goes on, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. That is so cool. 
is that God himself, and even some of these non-essentials that we struggle with, God is the master. He is the leader. We can trust and surrender lordship and leadership to him and know that he will help the believer stand in him. Like 10 years ago, uh, when I was the youth pastor here, we had a girl who was 15 and she accepted Christ. And it was this amazing transformation in her life. And so we thought, you know what, let's have the whole church hear about her story. And so she came up here on a Sunday morning and she shared how Jesus had changed her life because Jesus is in the business of changing lives. And so we just celebrated that as a church. Like, this is so cool. This 15-year-old girl has been changed by Jesus. The next day, I'm in my office, and this person comes in. I had never met this uh, woman before, and she comes in, and she goes, hey, are you Matt Doan? And like the way that she said it, I was like, I probably should say I'm Matt Davis at this point, because <laughs> I think what's happening next is not going to be good. And she goes, I can't believe that you allowed that girl to get up and share last Sunday. And I was like, well, what do you mean? She goes, the way that she was dressed was despicable. It was so embarrassing to have her in a worship house of worship wearing what she was wearing. And honestly, for me as a leader, I was like, wow, I didn't even think about like coaching her through that, which is kind of awkward for like a youth pastor to tell a girl. So I was like, I should have had one of my leaders like tell her that. But then it was just like, man, verse four says that God is the master and God will make a Christian stand. And it was so cool with this girl is that, yeah, she, there were some rough edges to her life. She had just become a Christian. She didn't know how to, like, dress the part, in a sense. But over the course of her high school career, it was awesome to see her, even as with her and God, be convicted on some of that stuff and for have a personal conviction for her to go, you know what, I'm going to dress in a more modest way. And it had nothing to do with anyone complaining about it. It was just God and her working that together. And I love that. So we should be careful not to jump in and supersede what God himself will do. Verse 4 says that God will make this person stand. That is amazing. But then does that mean that we should never, uh, like, you know, bring up something that a Christian does? Like, what if a Christian is living in sin and, and has a behavior and an attitude that is sinful? Like, should we just be like, well, for the sake of unity, I'm just going to ignore this, no big deal? No, it's not saying that. In fact, all throughout the epistles of Paul, he is so concerned with the purity of the church. And in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, a little leaven affects the whole bread. In other words, a little bit of sin affects your whole life. If we allow sin just to camp out in the church, well, that can be even more de decisive than, than unity. On Monday, we were swimming at my house. There's a picture of my backyard. And... Our little two-and-a-half-year-old pooped in the pool. <laughs> and I've never seen our nine-year-old and six-year-old jump out of the water as fast as they did when they noticed this floating log in the pool. We scooped it out. We poured chlorine on it. We did all we needed to do. Last night, we had Jonathan and Joyce Smalley and their kids over for dinner and for swimming. Now, can you imagine if the Smallies would have come over to our house and uh, <laughs> poop was just floating in the pool? We're like, oh, like, don't even worry about that. That was like, that was from Monday. The, the pool's big. Um, it won't affect you. It's like, no. 
that's how sin is. We're not called just to let sin hang out in our lives. So don't hear from Romans 14 that unity is the most important thing and, and we should never you know, confront sin. It's not saying that. It's saying in these non-essentials, in these things that don't determine if someone's a believer in Christ or not, have grace with one another. Be a community with each other. And God will sustain you. He will lead you. He will make you stand. And then verse 5 goes on. This community of grace is a community that recognizes authentic worship. It looks in verse 5. It says, One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. So now it's talking about not only diet, but days. And then verse 6. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat, and then he gives thanks to God. This is amazing. It's saying, here in the first century, those that had no conviction of eating meat, they just felt freedom in Christ, they were doing so, they were eating meat, whatever came before them, and they were doing it as an act of worship. They were giving thanks to God. But then those that were called weaker in this context were eating only vegetables, but they too... We're doing so, giving thanks to God, saying, God, thank you for providing this for us. In the same way that you sustain Daniel in the Old Testament, you can sustain me. And so thank you. And it was their act of worship as well. So Paul's saying here, while we can see the heart behind the behavior, is that both are worshipers of God. And that should be the template that we evaluate the non-essentials on. In fact, just even a good question is, if you test your decisions, your actions, and and things that aren't necessarily essentials in the Christian life. Two great questions to ask are, can I thank God for this? This thing that I'm doing right now, can I thank God for it? And can I do this unto the Lord? Is this something that I can do as an act of worship? And in verse 7, Paul just starts building, and I I love it. He goes, for not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. Verse 8, For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Just this worship just spills out of Paul as he's saying, Man, whatever you do, do it for God. For we, verse 8 says, we belong to God. We've talked about that in this Roman series, that if you're a believer in Christ, you are part of this family. You are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And what a great thing that is to know that, to have that confidence and assurance. And then verse 9, whenever Paul is talking about anything, he always brings it back to the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Verse 9 says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Well, it's a fact that Jesus died that he went to the cross, even as we sung about earlier, but the grave could not hold him. Oh, death, where is your sting? For Jesus rose again, and he is alive today. And Paul says, in the context of essentials, non-essentials, carnivores, vegetarians, remember this. Jesus died, and Jesus rose again. And then verse 10, it says, But you... Why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? 
And again, he uses this word brother, which indicates the family of God that he's talking to here. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're unified in that. He says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. The community of grace points people to God's authority and not our own judgment with the idea that one day we will all stand before God. We'll all have our time before God. That will happen. Oswald Chambers once said that there's always one more fact in every life of which we know nothing. Meaning that in our temptation to judge other people, to to stand in to the judgment seat of God, there's always something more about their life that we have no information about. And therefore, our best response to others is to offer them grace and to be a community of grace. For God himself will be the judge. We'll all equally stand before him. Verse 11, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. Direct quote from Isaiah 45. Remember we talked a few weeks ago about when in the New Testament, if it's all in capital letters, that's a reference back to the Old Testament. So Paul here is quoting Isaiah 45 when he says this, that one day... Every knee will bow and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, verse 12, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Is it fearful to you to think about this moment? That one day you will stand before God. Michelangelo in Rome, you can see this today in the Sistine Chapel, behind the altar has created this incredible elaborate painting. It's called The Last Judgment. It took him four years to create. As you study The Last Judgment, you can't see it here, but you could Google it when you get home or on your phone. You see all these images in The Last Judgment that are both beautiful but also scary. As you can see, almost Michelangelo's conflict as he he paints this scene of there's such beauty in coming before God, but there's also this fear that I believe Michelangelo had, and he's communicating through this painting of what that moment would be like. If you're a Christian, you don't have to fear the last judgment. Why? Because you've been super good. No. No. We have failed to be a community of grace so many times. Um, Tuesday, I'm writing out this message, and I get in a discussion with someone on our staff, and I completely am ungraceful in my discussion. And they walk out of my office, and then I go back to reading the Word. (laughs) And I'm looking at Romans 14. I'm like, ah! This is hard. This is difficult stuff to live consistently according to Romans 14 to be this community of grace. Even this morning I had a discussion with somebody and I felt super ungraceful in that moment. So I'm trying to rush things along. We struggle to be a community of grace, to be a Christian of grace. But as a Christian, we don't have to fear the last judgment because... There will be one that is next to us. There will be an advocate right next to us at the last judgment. 
And this advocate, every time an accusation is brought before us, or every time something in our life is reviewed that we've failed in, that we've messed up in, that we've struggled in, that we haven't been Christ-like in, this advocate will say, I've paid the price. I've dealt with that through my blood. This advocate is Jesus. And in 1 John chapter 2, he says it so beautifully. When it talks about what Jesus does, and think about Jesus saying these words as you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 1 John 2. It says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. That is our God. We live, we serve, we worship, we know, we belong to a God who in himself is a community of grace. You see, the triune Godhead is a community of grace. The Father accepts us through the work and atonement and the blood of the Son, Jesus. And the Holy Spirit points us to Jesus and says, this is why you can stand before the Father. The whole triune Godhead is a community of grace. Amongst the persons of the Godhead, it is grace. And then to us, it is grace. This is the God that we worship. This is the God that we belong to. This is good news. And so here's how I respond, even in the context of gathering together on a Sunday. I want us to respond at the stations. I want us to respond by coming to the stations and remembering Jesus' work on the cross. You've received mercy through the blood of Christ. And so remember that at the stations as you take the juice and as you take the bread. At the stations, too, there's an opportunity to give. And that's just a response to the fact that you live and serve and belong to a gracious God. And there'll be chances to pray if you want to go off to the side. Maybe you need to do business with God. Maybe as you stand here today, you're like Michelangelo. And the idea of judgment is fearful to you. Let today be the day that you say, Jesus Christ, become my Savior and the Lord, the leader of my life. There's a little booklet in the seat in front of you. If you want to pull that out, you can. And you can just walk through it and you can even agree and join the prayer that is written in there. If today is a day that you want to make yourself new through the blood of Christ. And so we'll have a chance to respond through the stations, through, through just being alone and, and praying to our Lord. And then also, I'd love for us to say a prayer together to make a renewed covenant and commitment as the family of God here at Calvary Church to be this community of grace. And so if you have your notes of your outline, flip it over to the backside. And what I want to do is lead us in this prayer. I'll say the top part and you respond as the community of grace. So may this be our prayer. In our differences of worship styles and church practices, we say, 
May we be a community of grace. In our differences of age, backgrounds, and interests, may we be a community of grace. In our diversity of spiritual gifts, vocational callings, and future goals, may we be a community of grace. For the sake of unbelievers here in Orange County and the world, may we be a community of grace. For the sake of future generations that follow us here at Calvary Church, may we be a community of grace. Because of the amazing grace we've received through Jesus Christ, may we be a community of grace. And then we say together these words. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Psalm 133.1. Let's pray. Father, may your spirit knit together your word with our hearts to produce change. We desire to be this type of community that loves each other, that shows patience with one another, that continues to walk alongside each other, even in difficult times. God, we need your power, your strength, your energy, and your vision to do this. May it start at the cross, and as we respond to your grace, may we be a community of grace.